0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning to Philippians, little book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Just want to read one verse. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Many things in life are uncertain. Many things are unreliable, untrustworthy. People fail. Promises are broken. Vows are unkept. Deals are reneged on. Good intentions fall short and well-meaning assurances very often are forgotten about. But one thing is certain, one thing is absolutely sure, it's indisputable, it's incontrovertible, you can absolutely bank on it, that what God has begun in your life, he is well able to complete it. What he has started, he can most certainly finish. Paul said, I am confident Mm -hmm. I'm persuaded. I'm fully persuaded. There's no question in my mind, he says. What God has started, he can finish. What good work was Paul talking about that he was so confident of God finishing? Some say it's simply the church at Philippi, the church that he's writing to. And this was a church that Paul loved dearly. In fact, sometimes it's called his sweetheart church. Uh, this is a wonderful church and such a blessing to him as he was to it. And so they simply say that good work was he was praying and wishing and, and trusting that God would finish that work within that particular church. Some say that it was the Philippians' encouragement and cooperation and practical help towards him that they had done with him again and again. In fact, in chapter 4, in verse 10... He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that not at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. In all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And so this was a church that was very supportive uh, of the great apostle. And when other churches didn't support or couldn't support, uh, they stepped up to the mark again and again. Some say he was praying for their growth in grace, that that growth in grace would be complete in them, that God would finish that particular work in each of their lives, that work of grace. Some say simply referring to the Christian life as a whole. And that applies, all of this applies to us, of course, the Christian life as a whole. That God plans to complete that in our lives. Actually, it could be any of those things or all of them. Any of them or all of them. Certainly, whatever it was he meant... We know there was something that was spiritual, something that was of eternal value, something that really counted in the long run. Paul didn't deal with trivialities and petty things. He dealt with big things. And the big things that he was thinking about was God completing his work in our lives. And so, your salvation is a good work. Whenever Christ came into your life and he saved you and he washed you clean in his own blood and he put your name into the book of life, that was a good work. That was a wonderful work of Christ completed into your life that he did for how many years ago that was. Your growth and grace is a good work and there's always room for more growth and grace, isn't there? We're always should be growing in grace, and that's a good work. Also, your cooperation in the gospel, your practical help when it comes to the things of God, whether that's in church or involved in some para, uh, not military, but some para ministry. (laughs) Don't want you involved in the paramilitaries (laughs) unless you're saved and got out of them. (laughs) That'd be a big slip saying that, wouldn't it? eh? But I just say, just uh, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly or not, but, you know, whenever we changed the name of this church a number of years back from what it was to what it is now, we were toying around with different names. And because this is Lagan Valley, we thought, well, maybe Lagan Valley Fellowship, but then if you, that's the LVF. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely couldn't use that. <laughs> that would be awful, wouldn't it? So your cooperation, your practical help in the things of God, whether it's this house or outside this house, is a good work. It's a blessing to the kingdom of God. Actually, we need more workers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, Jesus said, are few. And so the more people steps up, the better it'll be. And so it's good for God, it's good for you, it's good for your family It's good for your children. It's good for your grandchildren. It's good for your community. It's good for the whole nation. That good thing that God wants to complete into your life. And notice here Paul's saying that God is the initiator. It was he who began a good work in you. And all of us can testify to that. We didn't go searching for him. He came for us first, didn't he? We love him because he first loved us. He was the one who sought us out. Even whenever we were cold and indifferent, even whenever we were in rebellion against him, he still sought us, and he followed us, and he wooed us, and he won us to himself. So this was a work of his mercy and his grace. He was the initiator. He who began a good work in you. So we stand today as believers because of what God has done for us. Not what we have done for him, but what he has done for us. 1 John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. Romans 5 and 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before there were stars in the heavens, before there were fish in the oceans, before the mountains were formed, before the rivers ever flowed, God had a purpose and a plan for our lives. In Jeremiah 1 in Isaiah 49 and Psalm 139, all the prophets said and recognized that God had a purpose and a plan for their lives before they were even born. While they were yet in their mother's wombs, God had that plan and purpose. For their lives. Now I find that a tremendous encouragement personally when I look back to my life and to think and to stop and thank God what I'm doing today that you had planned for this before I was even born and you saw to it somehow some way you saw to it that I would find your purpose and plan and I would embrace it and accept that and live in that the apostle Paul in Galatians 1:15 he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So even the Apostle Paul, whenever he was Saul of Tarsus, whenever he was going out threatening slaughter to believers. And going as far as Damascus to haul them back again to imprison them, even in that rebellion against God, thinking he was doing God's work, actually. Yet the Lord had mercy on him and followed him and met him on that road to Damascus and utterly changed his life. And then Paul recognized, this was the reason I was born. This is what I was born for. It's wonderful when you find the reason why you were born. It really is. Father decreed the plan of salvation. The son executed the plan. The Holy Spirit revealed that plan bit by bit. He who began a good work in you, you are a work in progress. Aren't you glad he hasn't finished with you yet? Now, sometimes we think we are the finished article. Don't we? We think that we could not be improved upon. (laughs) everybody else can be but we have arrived and we think that sometimes we don't, probably wouldn't say it but we think it until the flesh kicks in (laughs) until we lose our temper Or we say things that we shouldn't say. Or we do things that we shouldn't do. And then we quickly realize, no, we haven't arrived yet. There's much improvement to still be made in my life. We are a work in progress. You're still on the potter's wheel. And it's wonderful when you're on the potter's wheel because he's shaping you and molding you. And sometimes you feel the pressing of his hands in your life and it's uncomfortable. But he wants to keep pressing and shaping and molding because he's going to make something beautiful, a vessel out of your life that he can use. But let me tell you, for the rest of your life, you're going to be on that potter's wheel. He's always going to be shaping and molding and pressing. You're in the hand of the vine dresser. In John 15, Jesus gives that example of the vine dresser who's out pruning the vines so that they will bear much more fruit. And so he has to cut back the old wasted vine, the old woody stuff. He's got to cut that back so that new fruit can grow and be fed with the sap. Many, many years ago, before we ever knew David Henderson, David Henderson's landscape gardener, Many, many years ago, our garden was in a terrible state, and Sally says to me, we've got to get somebody to cut this. Cut these bushes and cut these hedges and cut this and cut that. And there was a, a man in town here, and we, we, we nabbed him. And we says, could you come and do our garden? Certainly, I'll be there next, whatever it was. Sally was out that day, and I was left there. And he arrived, and uh, you can guess it wasn't a good idea our leaving because what I know about gardening, you put in a postage stamp. And so he says, well, uh, we'll cut that, and we'll cut that, and we'll cut that. And I said, like, yeah, just go ahead, just cut away. Just knock yourself out, as Americans say. <laughs> and he cut away. And Sally came home, and she nearly cried. He, the place was just scalped. <laughs> uh, and we could see her neighbours across the street. You could nearly see what they're having for their breakfast. <laughs> And Sally was in this terrible state. And she says, do you think it will grow again? I says, I don't know. He, he said it would. <laughs> but I know. She says, well, I'm not so sure. In fact, he said to me before he left, he says, you're going to have to keep this down, you know. And I thought, keep it down? It'll be about five years before we'll be asking you to come back. <laughs> but he knew what he was talking about. And let me tell you, in months, that thing was like a jungle again. Because once you start pruning... Then there's new growth comes, and then it just goes mad. I mean, it just, David will tell you, that's what keeps this boy in a job. Because <laughs> it just grows and grows and grows. And so now we have to get it done all the time. And so God is the one with a the, with the pruning knife. And he comes to our lives and he cuts off the dead wood, that which is unproductive. That which is holding back the new growth. He wants to cut that out and cut that back so that his new fruit grows on the vine. You're in the hand of the potter, you're in the hand of the vine dresser, you're in the hand of the master carpenter. I'm mixing my metaphors this morning. You're in the hand of the master carpenter. Jesus, from he was just a lad until he was 30 years old, was a carpenter. He worked with wood, he built stuff. He made chairs and tables and yokes and farm implements. Whatever had to be made, he would make it. Can you imagine Jesus making some table or some yoke for an oxen? Can you imagine how meticulous he would be and how careful he would be in making that so that it would be just right? It would be the best that he would do. I could imagine it would be the very best. And he would take his time. And he would know exactly what to do because he'd watched Joseph. He had grown up under Joseph who showed him what to do. And so we're in the hands of the master carpenter. And he knows what to do. He knows what to make. He knows what will be useful in his kingdom, how he can use us for his glory and he can make us into something that will be a blessing. Something of eternal worth and value. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Uh, Living Bible says, I am sure that God who began the good work in you will keep right on helping you to grow in his grace until his task in you is finally finished. The NIV, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The message, which is just a paraphrase, He says, There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day that Jesus Christ appears. See, God has got a vested interest in you because he invested the best for you. His own precious son, Knowing that he would go and give his life for us. That was God's investment in you and in me. And that's a big investment, isn't it? That's everything. That's the best that heaven could afford. He has set his affection on you. You're the apple of his eye, you're the object of his desire. God loves us much more than we can even begin to imagine. Jesus said it perfectly well in John 17 and 3 in that great prayer for his church. Jesus said, The Father loves you as much as he loves me. And as I always say when I say that, unless Jesus had said that, we could not believe it. Imagine God loving you as much as he loves his own son. And it was his son said that. It's incredible, isn't it? How do you get your head around that? that Almighty God loves us just as much as He loves His Son, the Lord Jesus. But that's what Jesus said in John 17 and3. "Other than Jesus, there is nothing on heaven or on earth more precious to him than you are. Nothing. No angel, no archangel no cherubim, no seraphim, no prophet, no patriarch, none of them does he love any more than he loves you. In fact, he loves you as much as he loves his son, so that means nothing can compare to that. You are his son's bride. You are his Holy Spirit's temple. You are the father's child. I can imagine, and I can only imagine because it's not recorded. I can imagine a conversation in heaven between the Father and the Son. And the Father is saying that in order to save us from our sins, that a great price is going to have to be paid. And I can imagine the Lord Jesus saying to the Father, Father, I will pay that price. If you love them that much, I will go and die in their place. That's how much he loves us. What a love this is. So God fully intends to complete you. We're not the finished article yet, not by a long shot but he fully intends to complete us. In Jude, verse 24, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's the Father's goal for your life, that he may present you faultless before his throne. How could that possibly be? I don't know. But that's what he's aiming for. That's his goal in your life. He's fully committed. Paul understood this. In Romans 8, 35 to 39, he says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? "'Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, "'or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, "'as it is written.'" For your sake we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Note this. For I am persuaded. I am fully convinced. You cannot make me doubt this. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Nothing, he said. Paul was persuaded about a number of things. In 2 Timothy 1 and 12 he says, For I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What have you committed unto him against that day? Then you be fully persuaded that he'll be able to keep that. (coughs) Hebrews 12 and 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith the originator and the perfecter of our faith. He who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. If he's the Alpha and the Omega, then he is fully qualified to be the author and the finisher of your faith. Looking unto Jesus. The word there in the original means to give your undivided attention to to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, not to be distracted or diverted. In recent days we read in the in the Christian world that there are those who are have been in leadership who have taken their eyes of Christ completely and they've wandered off and are now denying the very faith that they once proclaimed nothing new in that. Demas has forsaken me, haven't loved this present world. There's nothing new in that. But now it's worldwide news among Christians. And there's so many of them that have become shaky. Why? Because they kept their eyes, took their eyes off Christ instead of keeping their eyes on the Lord. They got their eyes on people and situations and things and the world around them instead of keeping their eyes focused on Jesus have what happened to Peter while he still kept his eyes on the Lord. He walked on that water. The moment he took his eyes off Christ and got distracted by what was around him, then he began to sink. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord. People will fail you. Situations will fail you. But he'll never fail you. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul said to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He knew he was heading for the executioner. He knew that he was going to be a martyr for Christ. As far as he was concerned, it was already happening. The final chop hadn't been made, but it was as good as done, and he... He had made up his mind that's the way that it was going to be. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, he's not bragging on himself here. You know, when you compare Scripture by Scripture, you know that Paul was fully trusting in the grace of God. He was not dependent on his ability I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he was under no illusion about himself, but he knew as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, that he would complete that work in him. In the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, in the marathon, there's a Tanzanian runner, John Stephen Akwari. John Stephen Akwari was a good runner, representing his country, Tanzania. And he started well, was in the leading pack. But the problem was that the Tanzanians, fully knowing that Mexico City is a very high altitude and should have trained them somewhere with high altitude, in fact, they did the opposite. And so when he was in the leading pack, he began to cramp up. And because he cramped up, he fell. And he gashed his knee and hurt his shoulder. And the paramedics there gathered him up, took him aside and, and started to bandage him up. And he says, I, I need to keep on. He says, no, you shouldn't be running. You're in no fit state to run. He says, no, I've got to run. I've I, I got to run. And so he ran with his leg all bandaged up. And he was more or less sort of hopping along. He was really struggling. So much so, in fact, that the race was well over. In fact, the winner was already... In fact, all the the contestants were already run the race, had their showers, were out doing interviews. And they sent word on the the loudspeakers that there was still one runner left, and he was still running. And so people stayed on to see this runner And after an hour, after everybody else had finished, here he comes. And you can see it on YouTube. Here he comes into the stadium, and he's limping. And he gets where you have to do one more lap around to finish it. And he gets into the stadium, and people began to see him. And his spirits picked up, and he began to run around. And he did that one lap, and he finished. He finished. And after the people chapped and cleared, cheered. And after it was over, an interviewer said to him, Why did you not stop? Why did you keep on running? Because the paramedic says you shouldn't. You're not fit to run. Here's what he says. My country did not send me here to start the race. My country sent me here to finish the race. (laughs) And he became famous for making that statement. My country sent me here to finish the race. What an attitude. Paul says, I have finished my race. I have run my course. And you're running your race. You make sure you finish your course. You may not be first over the line. You may be last over the line. You may take some tumbles along the way. You may come into that stadium bandaged up and bruised, but keep on running. Finish your course. First Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. You are the called of God. You are the called of God. You say, well, I don't know what my calling is. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You may not know what it is specifically at this point, but there's a general call that every believer is called to, and you find it in your Bible. So don't ever say, I, I don't know what I'm called. Look the Bible and see all the things that God calls us to do. And then do all that. And as you do all those things you know to do, then God will begin to show you, if there's something specific for you, he'll begin to show you what you've got to be doing, that which you already know you're called to do. How are you going to do that? Read the Bible. See what God says for every believer. Because in that sense, we're all called the same. And as we do that, and as we run that course and run that race, then if there is something specific relating to your life, then he will let you know. And he will guide you into that as you run your race. Psalm 138.8. The Lord will perfect, the Lord will complete that which concerns me. There's a good promise, isn't it? Are you struggling? Do you find the Christian life difficult? Are you facing some hurdles? Has things happened and stuff taken place in your life that is trying to knock you off course? Then look what the psalmist said The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Sometimes you need to pray that. Say, Lord, I'm struggling, I'm facing difficulties. Lord, this is not easy what I 'm going through, but your promise is that you will fulfill, you will complete, you will perfect that which concerns me. So whatever concerns me, whatever your plans are for me that concerns me, then you're going to perfect that. So what will he perfect concerning you? Because he's the author, and he 's the finisher of it, isn't it? He? he will perfect your faith. Romans 12 3, God has given you the measure of faith. Each and every one of us has the measure of faith. Matthew 6, 30, Jesus spoke of little faith. 1720, Matthew speaks of mustard seed faith. Tiniest of all the seeds. Matthew 8 and 10, Jesus speaks of great faith. Acts 6 and 5 speaks of those who were full of faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, exceedingly growing faith. Hmm. And so there's a progress to our faith, isn't there? And as we go on in our Christian life, our faith grows, our trust grows, our dependence on the Lord grows, because that's what faith does. Romans 3.22, we're made righteous by faith. Romans 3.28, we're justified by faith. Acts 15 and 9, we're purified by faith. We stand by faith, Romans 11.20. We walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5.7. We live by faith, Galatians 2.20. We overcome the world by faith, 1 John 5 and 4. No wonder the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. So faith is something that God has already put in each of us. Now he wants to complete that. He wants that to grow. He wants that to mature. He wants that to be fulfilled and to fulfill our lives. He will perfect your faith. He will perfect your righteousness. Theologians talk about positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positional righteousness, being justified in God's sight through the work of the cross. You put your trust in Jesus Christ, he gave you a right standing with God. He justified you. He gave you a stand of righteousness. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. He did that for us. That's positional righteousness. That's where we stand today as believers, in righteousness but then there's practical righteousness. That's our legal position before God. He did that. But now that he's done that, then there's the outworking of that. That's when the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you work that out in your life. There's the practical side of it where you live it out. Yes, God placed you in that position, but now you've got to live that out each and every day. And that's the outworking. That comes through our our, our integrity, our moral rectitude, our holiness, our purity. Another word for that is sanctification. So, positional righteousness is the root of righteousness. Practical righteousness is the fruit of righteousness. Where is it? Now we need the fruit of that to come through. One relates to your salvation. The other relates to your sanctification. He will perfect your righteousness. Part of that is perfected already. He has made us righteous. But now he's perfecting the sanctification part, the working out part, so that we can walk in it. And finally, he will perfect your growth in grace. Ephesians 1 and 7, speaks of the, Paul speaks of the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 7, he speaks of the exceeding riches of his grace. The grace of God is beyond what we can fully comprehend. Far beyond. 2 Peter 3, 18, Peter says, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm not much of a gardener, i freely to admit that, but I know enough to know this, that if you plant something, you need to watch where you plant it. Because it will not grow just anywhere you plant it. There's Some plants will grow best south-facing, some will manage north-facing, some will manage more sun, some will less sun, some more acidic soil, some more whatever else type of soil there is say there's a limit to what I know about the soil but I do know that if you plant something you've got to make sure that it's in the right place and it's fed and fed and fed continually until that grows strong and Peter says the soil in which you will grow best spiritually is grace we need the grace of God We need the grace of God whenever we slip and we fall, but we need the grace of God to make us strong and to do the right thing. Grace teaches us, the Bible says. It teaches us a lot of things. So Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're not fully perfected. We haven't arrived yet. We're still trying to get there. In Philippians chapter 3, and we'll close with this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writing here again. In verse 12 he says, Not that I have already attained. This is 30 years after he said. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, I follow after that which that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or laid hold in that. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus church who says, I haven't arrived yet, I haven't got there yet, I haven't laid hold of everything that Christ has laid hold of me for. But he said, I'm pressing on. I'm still going forward. I'm still trying to get there. And that's what God requires of us, because he wants to finish what he has started. And if we keep on going on and pressing forward and trying to grab hold of everything that he's got for us, you can be sure God will finish what he has started in your life. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you for every believer here this morning. I thank you for what you have begun already in their lives. And Lord, if some of them are just newly saved, or some has been saved a lifetime, you're still Finishing and completing and working in their lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you will produce the finished article. That on that day, that they will stand before you, spotless. And Lord, that you will have exceeding joy because of that. And so we thank you, God. Thank you for every mercy that you show us. For every blessing that you bestow upon us for your grace that is continually in our lives every single day. We give you thanks for that. And Lord, as we reach out by faith, Lord, to apprehend everything that you've got for us, thank you for your grace that gives us the strength to do that and to live in it and to live by it. So we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.